You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I'm excited to look at this passage with you today, and especially in light of the cultural moment or the cultural mood we are living through. And particularly here in the Western world, we are living through a cultural mood that is often called a deconstructive or a deconstruction mood or era. Now, this this term uh, originated in French philosophy and literary theory. It, It means to take something apart and to examine it to examine what it's made up of. And and it's usually done with the suspicion that the thing you're deconstructing is not as good as it represents itself to be. So it's done with what they call a hermeneutic of suspicion. It's not what it's supposed to be. Now, you don't have to understand French philosophy or literary theory, or you don't even have to know what deconstruction means or think any more about it to, to track. All you need to do is think about a hot dog. Have you ever seen a hot dog? Have you ever eaten a hot dog? They're amazing, aren't they? Amazing to eat. Uh, it, it look, it, they taste good. They also look amazing. They are, they are perfectly round. They are tinted to just the right color of pink, and they are delicious. But if you Google what's in a hot dog, you will be horrified. And so I did it in part of my sermon preparation, and I stumbled across a video put out by the fine people at the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and they have deconstructed, they have examined a hot dog with a hermeneutic of suspicion, and they have reported what's in it, and I'm, I'm going to share that with you. Here's, here's what they said. From grinding up meat trimmings from pigs, chickens, and cows to pumping out brown sludge that's eventually formed into a phallic-shaped monstrosity, every stage of production leaves watchers wondering how in the world hot dogs are legal to sell, let alone classified as food. Hot dogs are made of, quote, mechanically separated meat, defined by the U.S. Department of Agriculture as a paste-like and batter-like meat product produced by forcing bones with attached edible meat under high pressure through a sieve or similar device. When they chow down on a hot dog, consumers also get much more than they bargain for, including glass, plastic, metal, bone, rodents, and other miscellaneous objects. It's no surprise that the World Health Organization now classifies hot dogs and other products, processed meats as carcinogenic in the same category as cigarettes and asbestos. So if we went, if we went and like ate the walls of this place and smoked cigarettes, that would probably be as healthy as eating a hot dog. That's, That's what they're saying. Now, we are living through a cultural mood that sees many things like PETA sees a hot dog. It sees the history of Western nations this way. It says these nations which pretend to be committed to ideals of liberty, sometimes called classical liberalism, are actually committed to the propagation of racism and injustice. So you might think that the progress of these nations has been to open up freedom to more and more people and to open up prosperity to more and more people. And and they might have told you, yes, we're not perfect, but we're making progress. But actually, all they're doing is sustaining a system of injustice. Classical works of literature and philosophy are being deconstructed. These might look like sources of wisdom where we can understand the human dilemma of living in this fragmented, broken world, and we can understand how to pursue truth, but actually all they are are power plays. They are intended for some people to maintain power over other people, and they use what they call great works of literature to do that. Economic systems 
are being deconstructed. Capitalism might have produced the most wealth in the history of the world. It has also produced inequality. Now, if, if, you're, if you're getting a little uncomfortable, it's because there can often be threads of truth in deconstruction, even if the whole picture they paint is itself rather extreme. And in this cultural era, guess what else gets deconstructed? Whole religions and movements of religion get deconstructed as all about politics and power plays. Now, for many of us who claim to be Christian, this takes a personal turn. This can take a very personal turn when people start saying, I feel like I need to deconstruct my faith. I've been through a season like this. When I went to seminary, I felt like I needed to examine where my faith had come from, examine not just my personal history, but the, but the history of, of what they called evangelicalism. And so people say, I need to take my faith, faith apart, examine where it came from, uh, learn what I should have believed and what I should not have believed, and see if it's even worth believing, often with the suspicion that it's probably not. So sometimes on the other end of deconstruction, people say, I have a stronger faith, but, but many times they say, I'm not, a, I'm not even a Christian anymore. I wouldn't even call myself that anymore. And part of the reason we feel like we need to do that is that's what our culture is doing with a lot of stuff. That's what it's doing with a lot of stuff. And, and the question I wanna ask today is, what would Jesus say to his church that is living through an age of deconstruction? And I want to put two lenses on it. Like, I want to ask, what would he say to the church? And I want to ask, what would he say to us individually as, as well? And so, you, you might hear this today in, in both of those veins. Some of us would say, I know someone who's deconstructing. I, this, when I started doing ministry in, in Denver 15, 16 years ago, this was a, a big part of the people that got caught up in my net. Personally, some of you might say, you might even be scared to tell your friends or your spouse or your pastors, but you would say, I, I think I'm examining my faith in a way I've never had to, and I'm, I'm not sure anymore. And what would Jesus say to you? So what would he say to the church? What would he say to you? What would he say to us in an age of deconstruction? Now, anytime we ask what Jesus would say, that it's a little speculative, right? Like, what would Jesus say? So when I ask that question, I'm just asking this question, really. Is there anything in his teaching that I think helps us understand and navigate this moment? And, and that's what leads me to this passage in, in John chapter three that we just read together. And in fact, if you study the history of Christianity in our own culture in America, God has used John chapter three, verse one to 15 on several occasions to renew and revitalize faith in people and in his church. We call these uh, the awakenings. The first great awakening in the middle to end of the 18th century, second great awakening, early 19th century. This story of Jesus interacting with Nicodemus in John chapter three has been used by God in the awakenings to renew his people. So I think it's very applicable to the cultural moment that we live in. Now, I'm just gonna point out some features of it and we'll look at these features together. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus himself is deconstructing, to use our term, he's, he's not affirming a certain kind of faith. Now, right before the story with Nicodemus picks up, 
If you have your Bibles open, just look at the paragraph that comes right before. It's at the end of chapter two, uh, verse 23 through 25, and and it, it reads like this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So they saw the miracles Jesus was doing, and they said, I believe in his name. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, Jesus' main ministry took place in Galilee, which was northern Israel, and uh, several times a year, probably, he would go to Jerusalem for the big religious feast and festivals. And this takes place while he's in Jerusalem. He's, he's preaching and he's doing signs while he's in Jerusalem. And this was a highly, highly religious society. And you guys know how these real highly religious societies work. Uh, religious celebrities grow up in these religious societies. And so uh, Jesus became a religious celebrity. He was a traveling preacher. He went from town to town to town to town. He, he basically said the same message everywhere he went which you can get a great glimpse of it in the Gospel of Mark, chapter one, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus said everywhere he went. He was kind of like uh, someone running for president who says the same thing in every town they go to, what the press calls a stump speech. Jesus had a stump speech. And he also performed these signs, these, these what we would call miracles, but he meant them to be signs that demonstrated the power of the kingdom of God. He did these things and he became well known for them. And so Jesus, Jesus was famous. He's, he's famous. And this story begins when his ministry has really blown up and, and, jo- and John tells us while he was in Jerusalem, he did many signs and many people saw the signs. They believed in him. And, and then he throws this curveball and he goes, but Jesus didn't give himself to them because he knew what was in man. Like there's something about their belief that Jesus found problematic. So, There's a kind of faith, John is telling us, that Jesus doesn't affirm, he doesn't give himself to. And then immediately after that, we get the story of Nicodemus. And these chapter breaks weren't there, you know, in the, in when John originally wrote this. And so this is just like the very next thing. And it's not like, okay, there's a kind of faith Jesus doesn't give himself to. Uh, Now, new subject, let's talk about something else. Nicodemus shows up as an example of this kind of faith that sees the signs Jesus is doing, but that Jesus does not give himself to. This is the kind of faith that Jesus does not affirm. Now, here's what we know about Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, and he was a ruler of the Jews. And when we hear that, we think, bad guy, because we know that the Pharisees were the enemies of Jesus, and Jesus is a good guy, and so they are the bad guys. But that's not how they were perceived in their world. In their world, they were the good guys, and we should actually imagine Nicodemus as a good man, what we would call a good man. He, a Pharisee, to be a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews meant that you were like a representative to the Roman government, which means you've been chosen by your people to represent them. It was like a city council member or a mayor. So Nicodemus fits the profile of an honorable and respectable man. He's probably wealthy, He's probably older. Um, when, when, if you're younger and you are trying to make a career change uh, and you need to get some wisdom from an older man, you get Nicodemus and you take Nicodemus to breakfast and you're like, hey man, I need some advice. 
That's who Nicodemus is. So he's a pillar of the community. He's a good father. He's honest. He's hardworking. He's probably steadily built his wealth. So think respectable man, representative to Rome, statesman, mentor, guy you want to have breakfast with, and talk about your marriage. Now, let's think about his faith. He would have been born into the Jewish faith, so he would have grown up in Sabbath school, he would have had all the flannel graphs of Noah's Ark, he would have memorized Bible verses as a kid, and his whole life had existed within Judaism. Judaism was his whole world. He knew all the inside jokes to Judaism, he knew all the Jewish bands that were sorry knockoffs of the better Roman bands. Like, he would go, I can't remember a time when I wasn't Jewish and when I didn't profess faith in the God of Israel, he can't remember a time when he didn't faithfully attend synagogue and then as an adult, he's become a professional faith worker. He's seen a ton of traveling rabbis in his day. Traveling rabbis are just as common as guest preachers. He's seen a ton of traveling rabbis in his day. And, and he is really, really, really impressed with this one. I mean, this one, Jesus, this is unlike any traveling rabbi we've ever seen before. So he comes to him at night because Jesus is a little bit controversial, and this, this man, doesn't, he, he doesn't want to lose his dignity, but he wants to talk to Jesus, you know? He's, he doesn't want to sacrifice his respectability. He doesn't want his Jewish council friends to know, but he's really impressed with Jesus. He comes to him by night. Now, let's call his faith, remember we're thinking about his faith, let's call it a socialized faith. To be, to be socialized into something is just to be first born into it and then to live long enough in it that it feels normal so that you get all the language, you get all the inside jokes, your friends and your family all live in that subculture. Nicodemus's faith is just part of the social fabric of the world. And I think he's featured here because he is the best possible example of socialized faith. He's moral, he's upstanding, he's accomplished. There's no evidence that he's a hypocrite. He's a good man, he's a decent man. He's been socialized into Judaism. Jesus says that's not the kind of faith that counts for the kingdom of God. In fact, He's kind of abrupt in how he interrupts Nicodemus. Look, look, at how they, look at how their conversation begins. Verse one, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So Nicodemus is, is, is approaching him respectably, which is a big deal for an older, established guy to approach a younger guy with a title of respect. Rabbi, we, we know you're, you're a teacher and you've come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So remember, everyone had seen the signs and they were beginning to believe. Nicodemus is like, I've seen the signs. I'm starting to believe you're from God. No one can do these signs. It's, very, it's a very respectable, friendly approach. And and Jesus cuts him off. He's like, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again is Jesus' replacement for 
socialized faith. It's the thing, it's the new kind of faith that he wants to challenge Nicodemus into. So we might say it like this, Jesus is actually deconstructing a socialized kind of faith so that he can call this man and he can call us to be born again. Now, we have to do some work here because in popular American usage, now, now we bring our own cultural baggage, in, in popular American usage, born again means something different than how Jesus is using it here. So in American, born again means to have a dramatic conversion experience. Often after you have been like broken down and you've made a mess of your life, and then you find Jesus, we say like, I found Jesus or I got religion. So we tend to think of born again as a dramatic experience, primarily for people who have made a mess of their life and are broken down, have come to the end of their rope, and then they, they find the light and they find Jesus. If you watch the way that the press narrated George W. Bush's faith when he was running for president. Just, you can Google this afternoon, George W. Bush, born again, and you'll find interesting articles of the press trying to describe his faith that, that he would say, I came to faith after a, a, a pretty severe bout with alcoholism. They will describe that as born again because they don't know, they, that's the term they have. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is this passage. It's, it's what Jesus says about born again and who he says it to. What he says is, unless one, which means anyone, unless anyone is born again, which means like, I'm applying this to everyone. I'm not applying this to a particular kind of person who's made a mess of their life. I'm applying it to everyone. Unless anyone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is not like a subset of Christianity for a certain kind of person who's broken down and needs to have a born again experience. According to Jesus, this is Christianity. And it's not just for people who are down and out. It's not for people, just for people who have made a mess of their life. It's not just for the rebellious sinners. You know why? Because he said it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has not made a mess of his life. He's made much of his life. He's almost the exact opposite kind of person that we think in America needs to have a born-again experience. He's got no secret sin. He's not a hell raiser. He's not having an identity crisis. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, not know who he is anymore. He doesn't think he needs a new start at all. He's respectable and honorable. And Jesus says, even really good people like you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. That's how Jesus defines Christianity. So now what is it? What is it to be born again? Well, one of the mistakes I think we often make is we describe it as like a dramatic conversion experience. And some people do have fairly intense or dramatic conversion experiences, or we define it as a certain emotional experience. Some people have strong emotions, some people have less strong emotions when they come to faith, but we, we describe it as a, an emotional experience. But here's what I find interesting about this passage. Jesus is not really describing the experience of the process of being born again. He's describing the fruit and the new kind of life that he calls eternal life that results from it. 
So what he's telling us here is you don't, you don't like look for a certain kind of experience, you look for a certain kind of life. It's, it's almost like going, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. How did that duck come into existence? That's not the question Jesus is answering. He's answering, how does a duck quack and how does a duck walk? So he's describing what it looks like after it's happened, not as it's being experienced. Look, look, at, look in verse five. How, or we could think about it like this. How many of you remember your birth and can narrate the experience of your birth? Do you remember, do you, do you remember, uh, do you remember what a squeeze it was and, 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 and how, uh, do you remember that? No? Remember like going, when am I gonna be able to breathe again? Do you remember that? No, you can't, you can't. Are you alive? There's evidence, right? There's evidence that you were born. That's kind of what Jesus is, is doing here. Look, look at what he does in verse five. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, he expects Nicodemus to know what he's talking about. And this is the key because Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. And a teacher of Israel would have known the scriptures inside and out. Their scriptures are what we call Old Testament. So, Jesus expects Nicodemus to know what he's talking about because Nicodemus knows his Bible. So the, the, the flow of their interaction goes like this. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. Come from God. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. Truly, I tell you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus goes, huh? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's like sarcasm. Like, what are you talking about? Jesus is like, okay, let me put it in terms you'll surely recognize. Uh, unless one is born of water and the spirit, are you picking up what I'm laying down, teacher of Israel? Nicodemus is like, huh? Jesus goes, are you teacher of Israel? You don't know what I'm talking about? It'd be like if I said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. And Will got up there after I said that and goes, you know, where did you get that? would be like, it's in the Bible, man. It's the 23rd Psalm. You can't do a funeral if you don't know that. So Jesus wants Nicodemus to pick up his biblical illusion. And, and the biblical illusion is to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel ministered to Israel at a time when they had been captured, they were being taken to exile in Babylon, and through the prophet Ezekiel, God is saying to Israel, I'm not finished with my promise to you, and, and one day I'm going to return, and I'm not just gonna like restore you back to the way things were before you went into exile. I'm gonna do something so new that it's like a new thing altogether. I'm not just gonna give you the kind of life you had before you went into exile. I'm gonna give you a new kind of life altogether. Here's, here's what Jesus, or here's what uh, God says to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 and following. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So water in this prophecy depicts being clean, being cleansed. Israel is gonna be cleansed from their guilt and cleansed from their shame. Everyone who receives this new kind of life in Ezekiel 36 is gonna experience just a renewed freedom from guilt and a new freedom from shame. That's water. Spirit represents the attitude within. They're gonna have a, a new spirit within them. It's like a new attitude toward God. And it's probably an allusion to the Holy Spirit as well. And then they're gonna be given a new heart and it's gonna be a heart of flesh. God's gonna take out the heart of stone and he's gonna put in the heart of flesh. Now, do you know how stone works? If you poke a stone, you know what it does? It moves away from you. If you um, press on a stone, you know what your finger does? It doesn't go in. If you speak to a stone, you know how it responds? Doesn't respond because it can't hear. If you poke flesh, your finger goes in. If you poke hard enough, it absorbs it even more. If you speak to flesh, flesh is responsive. God's gonna give these people a heart that has a new responsiveness to his word. It doesn't move away from him when he speaks to them, but, but it, it lets his word in. So here's the fruit of the new birth Jesus is describing. It's freedom from guilt and it's freedom from shame, water. It's a new kind of relationship, a new attitude toward God within spirit. And it's a new heart that's sensitive to God's presence and sensitive to his word, flesh, it trusts him. It's careful to walk in his statutes. Now here's the question. Is that how you experience Christianity? Is that how you've experienced Christianity? Like, socialized faith says this. I've got to believe this list of doctrines. Here's the list of things I have to believe, and then there's some other things that I can't believe because apparently they're wrong. A born-again faith says, what a great God who would reveal his heart and his mind to us. See the difference in how it approaches just something like doctrine. For one, doctrine is just a list of things to believe. I've got to believe the right things and not believe the wrong things. And for the other, it is a revelation of the heart and mind of a living God to be treasured and rejoiced over and meditated on. Those are two different things altogether. Socialized faith says, here's the list of things I've got to do and here's the list of things I can't do. And the list of things I've got to do is hard and the list of things I can't do is fun. Born again faith says, God is telling me how the world works. He's telling me how he made me to flourish and the world 
to flourish. And so what a great God who would reveal to me the way he made the world work and and I trust him. And so I want to just bring everything under his lordship. It doesn't mean it's gonna be easy because I still wrestle with with the power of of sin, but I I wanna bring it under his lordship. I I trust that, that what he's telling me is good. Like those two things can functionally believe the same thing. But, the, but the, the heart, the spirit, so different, right? When socialized faith sins, it says, you know, I can't let anyone know about this because I could lose my reputation. I mean, I'm a deacon, or I'm an elder, or I'm a small group leader. I, I can't. I can't let someone know that I've sinned because I've got a reputation to uphold. Or my, what would my mom think? It's Mother's Day after all. What would, my, what would my family think? I'd lose my social standing. Born again faith when it sins says, I'm gonna confess that to my father because he's already forgiven all my sins so I can trust him with my sin. And then I'm gonna bring some trusted brothers and sisters in Christ in. I'm gonna tell them as well about my struggle so they can pray for me and support me. And you know what? I've got like nothing to lose in confession because like everything I've already gotten is grace and I'm already fully forgiven by, by God. See how those things are really different? Now, here's why this is really, really important. It's possible in a room like this with as many people as we have gathered here today, it's possible that some of us have just been socialized into Christianity and not born again into the kingdom of God. So at the personal level, it's really important to process it. At the church level, it's really important to process it too because a church that, that really cultivates socialized faith is, a, is not a safe place for sinners. It's not a place where people who have real questions and real sin and who don't have all the right answers yet and who can't check every box yet on the things to do and things not to do, it's not a place where they can show up and come to know the living God. It's a place they have to show up and look right to, to fit in. So it's really important at a church level that we cultivate new birth Christianity and it's really important at a personal level that we ask if that's our experience of Christianity. And I think this in an age of deconstruction, like I would guess what many people are deconstructing is a socialized faith. I would guess that the hypocrisy they see is the hypocrisy that naturally develops when more people have been socialized into Christianity than born again into the kingdom of God. And and I would guess even what they deconstruct in their own experience is layers of layers of being socialized in. Like like I went to a I went to I became a Christian in a Christian high school. I'd never been in a in a kind of a Christian subculture before. And the thing that I immediately noticed is like there's bands you have to listen to. Man, I showed up in my, in my Bible. We had a class called Bible, which that was a new thing. They have a class called Bible. And I showed up to Bible class and the first assignment, my sophomore year of high school, I'm brand new to the school in Bible class, is to bring a song that represents your faith. 
So there was a song by Van Halen, this was in the Sammy Hagar era of Van Halen, called Best of Both Worlds, and it said, you don't have to die and go to heaven or hang around to be born again, just tune in to what this world has got to offer, it, you may never be here again. And, and I was like, that, that sounds like my philosophy of life. And so I, I brought that song and I played it on my little jukebox and I, like this, and I explained it, I like exegeted it, I preached it to the class, and I'm like, guys, all, all of this like, all of this like tuning in to, to being born again, like that, that's not really what we have to do. We just need to, we just need to live for now. And I could just tell like, I, wrong answer, <laughs> wrong answer. And then every kid came up after me and played one of two people. One was named Stephen Curtis Chapman with some song about friendship, friends? No, no, about horses. And the other one was a guy named Michael W. Smith. All these people with these three names, right? And he was singing about friends. And I was like, and, and I, felt, I felt so clueless. I did not, I did not have the, the right social credentials. And fortunately, there was a teacher who created space for me to ask all my questions and explain to me the gospel. So, I think Jesus would also gently deconstruct, socialize faith just like he did with Nicodemus, but he, he doesn't just like leave us there with like our, our, our religion and a pile of rubble. He's, he's actually pointing us to something and he's, he's pointing us ultimately to himself. And I think if you've not experienced this kind of faith that Jesus is talking about, like you've only experienced Christianity as a list of things to believe and a list of things to do and not do and fit in and do the right things, if that's all you've experienced, I would guess, this because Jesus did this with what was called sinners, and sinners were just people who had left the religion of his day, I, I would guess he would call you back to your faith, but he wouldn't call you back to exactly the same thing you left. He would call you back to something that you've actually never experienced. How would he call you back? Look at what he does in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he's referring to another story that the teacher of Israel would have surely known. Israel had sinned massively and rebelled against God, and as a result, they had been invaded by a brood of vipers. It was like a repeat of the Garden of Eden. They were getting bitten by snakes and literally dying. God sent this curse, this plague of snakes on them. And as the people are dying, God says to Moses, make a bronze snake and put it on a pole and hold it up high in the air. And when people look to the bronze serpent on the pole, if if they will look at it, they can be saved. So Jesus goes, remember when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? So the son of man, that's how he referred to himself, is going to be lifted up. He's gonna be put on display. He's gonna be made public spectacle. It would be a cross that whoever looks at him and believes in him may have eternal life, which is a new kind of life that comes from new birth. Now, for most of us, 
that'll happen now. But what was fascinating was there was a guy crucified with Jesus right beside him who simply looked at him and goes, Jesus, remember when you come into my kingdom? And he's like, today you're with me in paradise. Dude was born again while hanging on the cross in the dying breaths of his life. So the way you're born again is simply to look to Jesus. Look to him lifted up. The way you cultivate a church that celebrates this kind of faith is to be a church that keeps lifting up Jesus on the cross more than anything else. That's your message. And it's what you guys are, it's what you guys are doing. Like we, we, we read about it in the profession of faith. Listen to this again and then we'll pray. But God, because of his great love, made us alive with Christ. Made us alive. And freed us from bondage to sin. By God's grace, we are reborn. Meaning, we, did we birth ourselves? It was a gift. Even our birth was a gift. So is the new birth. By God's grace, we are reborn and given the ability to repent of sin, to walk a new life, and to will what is good as God's own children. Thanks be to God for his abundant grace and mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in this age where so many things seem to be falling apart and being torn apart, where suspicion is the mood, where, where everything is, is not as it appears to be, where things we thought were good, like political systems and hot dogs, are, are being revealed to be something not what they promised. Thank you that even in this age when religious movements and religious leaders are sometimes being revealed to be something that are not what they represented. Thank you that you've given us a savior lifted up on a cross that we can look to who is exactly what he promised and is probably even better than we imagine. And, and I wanna ask that we could experience the kind of faith that he described here to Nicodemus, one that results from the new birth. That doesn't just result from believing the right things and doing the right things and going to the right places and being with the right people one that doesn't even require being raised in it, but one that experiences the full reality of this new birth. And so some of us maybe even want to ask you for that gift today by looking to Jesus, and some of us want to remember, like this is, this is the kind of life we have now, and we, we celebrate the fact that you have not just given us a list of principles and doctrines and practices, but you've given us life. We pray it in Jesus' name and by his spirit, amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.